The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, Happy New Year. It's good to see you all this morning. I'm sure many of you are planning your New Year's resolutions. I don't know if that means for you starting that new diet or signing up for that gym membership or getting signed up on farmersonly.com, but whatever it is for you, um, I hope that you have an incredible year in 2016. The holiday season is a great time for my family. My family, we drove from Temple, Texas all the way to Atlanta, Georgia, over 2,000 miles round trip. Can anyone else beat that over the holidays, driving that far? So someone else, okay, someone beat me, okay, you're good. So um, we drove all the way to Atlanta, Georgia, and something I've noticed about the holiday season in my family is that my mood tends to track with the holiday season. Can, can you guys relate to this? So around Halloween is when the holiday season begins, and as soon as Halloween's over, everything begins to build towards Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving has three great things, food, football, and napping, right? And so um, we have Thanksgiving, and then once Thanksgiving ends, of course, Black Friday happens, and everything just builds towards Christmas from that, from that point forward. And so my family loves the Christmas season. My kids are five and eight, and so they are into the whole warm and cozy uh, Christmas lights. We did the Salado stroll twice, two weekends in a row. Um, we're into making fires and drinking hot chocolate and watching Christmas classic movies like Star Wars. And so we just, we love the Christmas holiday season in our family. And so I've noticed that my mood tends to sort of track with the holiday season. And so even after Christmas Day, there's still many are on vacation, and you still have New Year's, you still have football every single day. But usually around January 2nd, it hits you. Just full-on depression, right? And so most of it, if you're like me, most of us, yesterday you start, it starts to sink in, like this is the end of the holidays, we're back to school, it's back to work. And so this week I searched the most depressing month of the year, and can you guess which one came up? It's January, you guessed it, you're right, it's January. And there's the post-holiday letdown, you spent too much, you ate too much, the days are short, the nights are long, there's bad weather. There is just nothing good about January. I mean, even the Super Bowl moved to February, right? <laughs> so there's nothing good about January. And so January has this feel of like back to reality, back to the grind. It's got that feel to it. And so Gary asked me to preach a New Year's message. He said, it's just a freebie, whatever you want to preach on. I said, that's, that's a dangerous place to put me in. And so um, I decided to pick a passage that has sort of a back to reality theme to it. And so I also picked this passage, though, because I think it has a big theme for our church, and it's the theme of discipleship. If you've been around here for a long time, you you know that our purpose in existence is to make disciples. That is why we exist as a church. And so in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus tells his followers, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And the word disciple is an interesting word because it actually means student, or follower. This is not just someone who uh, believes some facts about Jesus. This is someone who follows him 
and is a student of Jesus as they follow him. And so the mission of the church is to make disciples. We are called to be disciples, but also we're called to make disciples as believers. And so today I want to answer two really big questions, and the questions are these. First of all, what does it mean to be a disciple? And secondly, what is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple, and what is the cost of being his disciple? Now, this is a time of year when we, have, we see a lot of false advertising, right? At the holiday season, also this time of year, whenever there's lots of fitness ads on TV, and you've all seen the different fitness contraptions, there's always one usually related to abs that um, you'll see on TV, and, and they'll show a you know, before and after photo of some guy. Before photo looks like a guy who ate too many pancakes. He's got hair coming out of his shoulders, you know. The after photo, like he is just ripped. And so they'll ask the guy, well, how did you become this way? And he'll say, well, I just did this little ab machine, uh, you know, eight weeks, eight minutes a day. And, uh, and then you call, your, you call the number, you pay your $19.95, and, and you get the ab machine, right? And so we, when you're watching these commercials, something in you just knows, this is a lie, this is false. It's false advertising. But I think if we look at the church and Christianity, there's a lot of false advertising with how we present Jesus to people. And so we say things like, you know, follow Jesus and everything will be great. Follow Jesus and he'll work out all your earthly problems. Follow Jesus, everything will improve from there. And so there can be a lot of false advertising when it comes to the Christian faith because being a disciple is costly. Making disciples is costly. And so turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We'll be in verse 25 today. And while you're turning there, I mentioned the message of advertisers, especially this time of year. But there's also a disclaimer message that we often see with products and services. And so we've all all seen warning labels, disclaimer messages. We call it reading the fine print. And so um, you've seen medical things on TV where they say 20 seconds of positive benefits and then 40 seconds of of the risk and what's going to happen to you if you take this product. So here's one I found recently. This is... Chantix is a pill to take this, this, to stop smoking. Some people, while using Chantix to help them quit smoking, have had changes in behavior, hostility, agitation, depressed moods, suicidal thoughts or actions, anxiety, panic, hallucinations, rash, swelling, redness, and peeling of the skin, swelling of the face, mouth, and throat, which may be life-threatening. But hey, at least you stop smoking, right? I mean, I think it might be healthier to keep smoking if, right, if you look at it. I saw one recently, um, this is on a gas pump, pumping my gas. Before using pump, touch metal on car with your bare hand. This will discharge all static electricity. Failure to fully discharge may ignite gasoline vapors. How many of you guys actually do this as a habit? Okay, we know the safety conscious people are in the room. And I saw one recently on a treadmill. See, I go to the gym uh, to try to work out a little bit. Nothing crazy like CrossFit. Um, I mean, I just want to work out. I don't want to join a cult, right? But, um, 
but I go to the gym and try to stay in shape. And I was on the treadmill recently, and I saw this on the treadmill as I'm running. Consult a physician before using this equipment. Stop exercising if you feel pain, faint, dizzy, or short of breath. That's me every time I work out, right? So, so we see warnings and disclaimers, and we call this reading the fine print. With anything that we do, anything we buy, we see these kinds of disclaimers all around us. And so this passage today is kind of like that. This passage today is kind of like reading the fine print of Christianity. It's reading the fine print of what it means to follow Jesus. And so in the Gospels, Jesus says some hard things. And we're going to see one of those statements today in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33. Look with me if you have your Bibles open there. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, happy new year, right? And so today we're talking about the cost of discipleship. And before I look at what he's saying, I want to look at who's the audience in verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. So the audience is large crowds. And it appears when Luke writes this that he's connecting what Jesus is saying with who he is saying it to. It appears that what Christ is about to say, he's saying it because of who's there. And it's because there's great crowds that have accompanied him. And so before, up to this point in Luke, it's been mainly Pharisees and religious leaders. It's also been his core followers, his disciples, but now it is this large crowd that is now following him. Some just want to see miracles. For other people, a crowd attracts a crowd. They want to see what all the fuss is about with Jesus. And so what's interesting is that when you look at Christ's message, for most preachers, the larger the crowd, the softer the message. I'm guilty of this. But for Jesus, the larger the crowd, the harder the message. And so watch what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't put, the, the advertisers put the most positive message front and center. The disclaimer is nice little tiny writing that you're probably going to skip over. Jesus takes the warning, the disclaimer, and puts it front and center. And he's talking to the large crowds. He says, all right, this is what it's going to look like to follow after me. This is the cost of discipleship. And so the larger the crowd, the harder the sermon. Now we have to ask the question, you know, what, what is Christ really saying? Is he really saying that in order to follow him, you have to hate your family? I mean, we just finished the holidays. And so for some, that might come easy, Right? But what is he saying when he says, you've got to hate your family in order to follow me? The word hate here does not mean hatred in the way that we think of it. The word hate actually means to love less. It means to love family, relationships less than you love me as your your savior. So let me give you a picture. 
How many in the room have kids that are 10 and under? Raise your hand. I've got kids that are 5 and 8. So I love my kids. And guess what? I love your kids. But I love your kids less than my kids. Right? I mean, your kids are cute. But mine are just cuter. Right? So I love my kids more than I love your kids. And so what Christ is saying is that to, to, to hate actually means to love less in um, this passage. So if hate means to love less, then why doesn't Christ just say that and clear it up for us, right? Recently, actually many years ago, when I first came on staff here at the church, I came on staff as a junior high pastor. And I was reading this really confusing passage, you know, one of Paul's many long run-on sentences. And I read this passage and I said, you know, what Paul's really trying to say is, and I made some nice, concise statement, and this girl blurts out, well, then why didn't he just say that? And we've got to ask the question, when, why does Jesus say it this way? Why, did, why does Jesus try to confuse the matter and confuse us by this statement? And I would tell it to you this way. He uses such strong language because he's trying to help us understand where this might really lead. We're following him in this way, what it might actually lead to. And so, in that culture, the culture was Jewish, following Christ was not popular. Following Christ would have been counter to culture, counter to friends, counter to family. And so, if you decided in that culture to follow Christ, some might say, wait, wait, you're going to follow Christ and reject everything we've taught you since you were born? You're going to follow him instead of remaining with us? Why, why do you hate us? And you might say, no, I, I don't hate you. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. And they might say, well, it sure feels like it. It sure feels like hatred to us. In fact, Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke, he says, in that time and in that Jewish culture, there was no such thing as casual commitment to Christ. At that time, a Jew who made a choice for Jesus would alienate his or her family. A decision for Christ marked a person and automatically came with a cost. Some places, it's uh, not hard to relate to this idea. I think here it's harder for us to relate to this idea. We're so used to casual commitment to Christ because in our culture today, where we live in the Bible Belt, following Christ can still be somewhat socially beneficial. Not as much socially detrimental like other parts of the world. And so, I think for, if you're a skeptic, if you're someone that would not call yourself a Christian yet, I think this statement is great evidence for the truth of Christianity. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it that made these Jews want to follow Jesus because they had nothing socially to gain from that. They had nothing to gain from that economically, job-wise, business-wise, family-wise, social-wise. They had nothing to gain from it. And yet these men turned and followed Jesus. Many gave up their life to follow Jesus. And if you're a skeptic, if you're not yet a believer and you're questioning the truth and veracity of Christianity, you've got to answer the question, why? Why did these people, early believers, 
come to believe in someone, and it costs them so much to follow after him? You've got to answer that question and wrestle with that question if you're not yet a believer. And so for some people, following Christ would make their family think that they hate them. This is also true in many other parts of the world. Obviously, in certain Muslim countries, it's illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity. And so Victor Culligan, in his, uh, one of his books, Professor, he says, Satan looks to deter Muslim converts to Christ by threats and overt means, but he looks to dissuade Western converts by lulling us to sleep with easy believism. Arab converts are scared to take a leap of ultimate commitment. Western converts are fooled into believing that following Christ is all prosperity and ease. What he's saying is that in certain parts of the world, people know there's a cost. But in the West, we're fooled into believing there isn't one, or at least less of one. And so when you think about this this challenge that Christ gives these people, he says that following him is going to lead to potential view that, that people hate their family or hate their friends or hate their relationships in order to follow him. And this can be difficult for us because putting family before anything else, especially in our world today, feels noble, doesn't it? Putting family first feels noble. But if Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah and is who he says he is, if he truly is God, then to love your family second and to love him first is the best way to love your family. We love our family best when we love Christ first. And so if we get things out of order there, everything goes awry. We love family best when we love Christ first. And so if all this is true, loving them second is the best way to love them. Putting Christ first, putting them second is the best way to love them. And so Jesus doesn't stop here with just family. He he goes on. And he gets real offensive when he says, he must hate even his own life. Let that one sink into our self-centered, self-esteem culture, right? You ever heard the statement, especially today, before you love others, you have to, what? Love yourself. Now, some might point to, you know, Matthew 22, 39, where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not a command to love yourself. He's assuming you already do. He's assuming you already love yourself. And, and so I'm not, and that's a different sermon to talk about people who self-loathe and self-injure and suicidal. That's a whole different sermon, a whole different topic. Not discussing that today. But it's never commanded in Scripture to love yourself. And so he says, to be his, his disciple, we, we must despise even our own life. And so before you can love others, you have to love Jesus. And so in our culture today, loving yourself is noble. It's celebrated. We celebrate this idea where we live today. Even in the Christian world, we've bought into the self-esteem craze. You know, a few years back, I used to work at a different church many, many years ago in uh, North Texas. And there was a student that I had in that youth group. And his parents said that, you know, when he was in junior high, he was real skinny and had low self-esteem, and so they wanted to boost his self-esteem, and so they said, you know, we're going to get him in wrestling. 
We're going to put him in wrestling, which to me is not really a good idea, putting a guy in tights for other people, not a very self-esteem building thing. But, um, but they decided to let him do wrestling. And, and this kid rose the ranks, and he, he became in the top five in his weight class in the whole state. And he was just a beast. Like, he was working out like crazy, getting real big and strong. And suddenly, he had self-esteem. He had arrogance. He had confidence. And he, he was, I look back on him and I say, he, is, he was probably one of the most destructive people I've ever seen when it comes to relationships. Just using girl after girl after girl after girl. And so, yeah, he had self-esteem. He had a real solid self-esteem. And so what happens when we put self-esteem above Christ-esteem, we become a monster. We become an uncontrollable monster. And so if you and I find our esteem in anything apart from our identity in Christ, we turn into something that is almost inhuman. And so Victor Culligan, again, in his book, he says, healthy self-esteem starts with the truth that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Healthy self-esteem is holding right and honest views about yourself. So we can't have a right view about ourselves until we have a right view of who Jesus is. And so healthy self-esteem is not to think highly of yourself. It's to think highly of Jesus. And so in these first two verses, Jesus lists off that following him is going to cost you some relationships. It's going to cost you how you view yourself. But then he moves into something else, and he says, he refers to the cost of suffering in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so what does it mean to bear a cross? I think in our world today, most of us, we hear bear our cross, we think of minor inconveniences, don't we? We think of, well, you know, I had a lot of red lights on the way to work, just my cross to bear, right? And this is not what he's talking about. He's not referring to minor inconveniences. He's referring to, for many of these people, a literal cross that would lead to their death. Christ is on his way to Jerusalem and so he's referring to, for some of them, for many of them, their own cross, literally, not just some metaphorical image. And so, but when you think about Christ taking up his cross, what did it entail? It entailed Jesus embracing God's will no matter the cost. He knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweat drops of blood and he said, Not my will, but your will be done. And so he embraced God's will no matter what it cost him. And so what it meant to bear the cross in that day, the cross was the ultimate symbol of rejection. And so there's a connection here between what you see in here in verse 27 and what you see in verse 25 and 26 is that the theme of rejection is continued because the cross was the ultimate form of rejection in that culture. The culture, the world would stand against you and say, you are guilty, you're going to be put to death. That's a rejecting idea. Jesus, of course, being innocent, was still rejected in spite of his innocence. And so for you and I to embrace the cross and to carry our cross, it means to embrace God's will no matter what the cost is. Dallas Willard, in one of his books, he says, 
Many Christians think Jesus suffered so we don't have to. But true discipleship is a call to come suffer with Jesus. And so most of us think of the cross as being our ticket, and in some ways it is, in many ways it is. It is our ticket to salvation. But it's also this invitation that Jesus says, no, no, as a Christian, you come and you suffer with me. You bear your cross with me. And I know this is a part of the sermon when I was reading through this passage and studying it while I was on vacation with my family, and I was thinking, man, this is going to be a hard passage to teach because if you're like me, you start to question your salvation and doubt, well, what in the world? Jesus is saying, to be a disciple, I have to love him more than anyone or anything and deny myself and bear my cross. And, and who's really done all this? Can, can you show me the Christians that have done all this so I can see who they are? And so we get tempted to think, well, well God, like what, how do I make sense of this? And I want to give you some relief for a moment because um, Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke is probably the gold standard of all the Luke commentaries. But Daryl Bach said this one statement. He says, we shouldn't view this passage like it's an entrance exam. He's simply painting a picture for us of what discipleship looks like. So you don't need to think about it like, I've got to jump through all these hoops in order to become a Christian. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is just showing you what the end result of discipleship might look like. Christ is painting for us a very clear, clear picture. This is reading the fine print. This is the warning message. This is what it might look like for you if you choose to follow after me. Also, um, Dallas Willard defines disciple this way. He says, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. That's kind of a wordy definition, but there's one thing I want you to hang on to. It's this statement. A disciple is someone who is constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. So you can see, this is a process. Being a disciple is a process. A disciple is not someone who's got it all together. A disciple is not someone who knows everything. I want to be clear, the, the point of this passage is not, do you have what it takes to be a disciple? Army, be all you can be, right? That's not the point of this passage. I want to be clear about that. This is not a works-based salvation. Mark Driscoll goes on to say, salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship costs you everything. And so the point here is not, in order to get in to be a Christian, I've got to jump through all these hoops. The point is, Christ is painting a clear picture for us. If you choose to follow me, it's free. Yes, salvation is free in the cross. But following me is costly. He's painting a picture for us what it might look like for us. I think you see this clearly in the life of Peter. Think of Peter. Early on, what does he do? 
after three years spent with the Messiah, what does Jesus do? He denies Jesus. He denies that he knows him. But later on in his life, scholars tell us that Peter went to his own cross and suffered and died for Jesus. He felt like he didn't deserve to die the same way that Christ died. So he, he requested that they, they, they do it upside down for him. So they crucified him upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way as Christ. And so I want you to move into verses 28 to 30 now because Jesus gives us two illustrations to demonstrate, I think, his point about discipleship. And here's the two pictures we'll look at today. Look at verse 28. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So imagine if we've got a new building going on out here uh, across the parking lot here at the church. And imagine if um, we just started building something. And there was no plan, no budget. We'd be the mockery of this town. And so Christ is using this image of someone who wants to build something, but they first don't sit down and count the cost of how much it's going to take, resources, manpower, money. And so they just start building. And so the question is, what is Christ trying to communicate about the cost of discipleship with this picture? What is he really trying to say about discipleship when he gives us this image? I think he's trying to let us, let us see that Deciding to follow Christ requires deep reflection. Before someone decides to follow Jesus, they need to deeply reflect on the cost. And if they truly want to bear that kind of cost. And so he doesn't want anybody making knee-jerk reactions. He doesn't want anybody making hasty decisions. And so as a pastor, I found this very convicting because sometimes as a pastor, I'm guilty of this, we prefer quick decisions as opposed to deep discipleship, don't we? We prefer the quick conversion story, the, just, just pray this prayer, just do this one thing so you can become a Christian. I can say that someone became a Christian. And so, so often we, we, we prefer quick decisions to deep discipleship. And so one of the things I've started doing with my own students, we do also apply this to impact. We do impact every year um, here in our city where we share the gospel with um, five to ten-year-olds in our city. And we've tried so hard, even with small children, to not put forth a gospel that just says, all you've got to do is just pray this magic little prayer, right? We've tried to avoid that language. Now, let me be honest, I'm not saying that that when someone wants to follow Christ, that they can't pray to Jesus and tell, them that, tell him that. I actually encourage you to do that. But you can't look at that little, those little words that you say as being that your salvation is just wrapped up in these magic words because nowhere in Scripture do we see that. We see in Scripture words like belief and faith. This is what brings about salvation. The prayer is an expression of that. 
And so we try really hard with our students to not say those kinds of things to them. If you look at the next uh, verse here, verse 31, he gives another picture of what uh, this cost looks like, what it's illustrated as. Verse 31, he says, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so Jesus gives another picture of what um, it looks like to follow him. And so what, is, what do both these pictures have in common? He's referring to one being a building, one being a king going out to war. And both people, if they don't count the cost, they're in ruin. And so what Christ is trying to warn against, he's trying to warn against making a hasty decision. A hasty decision to follow him. And so, as I've looked at this passage this, the past couple of weeks, here's what I think he's saying when he says with these, with these two pictures that he gives. And it's this next statement. Jesus prefers that we not commit at all rather than committing casually. Now, I'll be clear. There's a certain sense in which all of us, when we come to know Jesus, that we are coming to him half-heartedly. I'm not at all saying that, that, that anybody ever comes to him all in. No one's all in. No one's complete. So I'm not saying, when I say casually, I'm not referring to just the way in which we all come to Jesus, which is with feeble faith. Right? I think of Mark chapter 9 where Christ is about to heal a man's son. And the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's how all of us come to him. We all come with belief, but mixed with some unbelief and some doubt and some questions. So I'm not trying to make you feel insecure this morning and say that, that um, if you're not all in from the beginning, completely and totally, that you're not a believer. That's not my point this morning. But I think Christ is trying to communicate a message very clearly to this crowd that he's speaking to, and he's trying to warn against making a hasty decision to follow him. And I think what he, when he uses these two pictures here, that he's trying to point out that he actually prefers that we not commit at all if we're just going to commit casually. And I know you might say, now wait a minute, how is that? I mean, isn't a little bit of Jesus better than no Jesus? Isn't just one little toe dipped in, isn't that better than nothing? And it reminds me of a story I heard, or a story I experienced actually, when I was over in, I was on a mission trip in England when I was in uh, high school, and there was this girl that we were talking to about uh, Christianity and the gospel, and she was just not a believer. She was a total atheist, and she just said, I don't believe this stuff, and um, we're trying to convince her and persuade her in our feeble ways, and her statement really struck me. She said, you know, I tried Jesus. I tried that, but it didn't work. It didn't work. And that statement stuck with me because I think there's a tie-in here to this passage because Jesus is not something we just try out. We don't just try him out. That's not what it means to come to Jesus. Of course, no one is sold out. This is a lifelong process. But Jesus is not one people just sort of trying him out. We'll just see how it goes. Because if someone 
comes to Christ with a we'll see how it goes mentality. This is conditional discipleship. This is Jesus, I'll only follow you if. Jesus, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to fill in the blank. What would those blanks be for you if we asked us that question? Because what happens when you and I come to Christ just casually, just kind of dipping our toes in, so to speak, it creates this mirage that we've truly tried him, and we haven't tried him at all. We haven't truly come to him in the way that he wants us to. And so Jesus is trying to warn this crowd, let them know, you can't make a hasty decision to follow me. You can't, you can't follow me like that. That's not how it works. And so Jesus says that following him will cost family and relationships and suffering. And he illustrates this cost in two different, two different pictures. Then he gets to verse 33, and we'll cover this one very quickly. And it's the cost of possessions. Look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so now Jesus is messing with our possessions, things that we own. And so I think one of the biggest issues keeping people from following Christ is materialism, consumerism. Our possessions can possess us, right? And so Daryl Bach in his commentary in Luke, he says, if Jesus offers what he says he offers, then there can be no greater possession than following him. And so you and I have to come to this place in our life where we, we see him as that. We see him as the possession. We don't see him as a ticket to get possession. We see him as the possession. And so in this short little passage, Jesus is messing with three huge elements that I think are core to our identity. He's messing with relationships. He's messing with our comfort. And he's messing with our stuff. These are three things about our identity that are core to who we are as people. And so, as we look at this passage, this is, this is the cost of discipleship. This is the warning message. This is reading the fine print. And so, I know we hear a passage like this, especially if you're not a believer yet, and your first thought is, well, why would I want to follow Christ? I mean, this is too costly. Who wants to follow Christ when you read passages like this? But I want you to consider this next quote by David Platt. He says, The cost of discipleship is great, but the cost of non-discipleship is even greater. We just had the Christmas holidays. You have many family members, friends possibly, that maybe haven't followed Christ and, and you know it's true. You can, look at, you can look at life, you can look at their life, and you can say, yeah, and, and some of you are seeing, you're seeing the cost play out of non-discipleship. You're seeing what happens when someone chooses to not make Christ the center of their life. And the cost of non-discipleship is way higher than the cost of discipleship. And so it costs more in the long run if we don't follow him. I want to close this morning with a few questions as you think about the coming year. If you don't know Christ, how cool would it be if you look back and you, and you say, you know what, this is the year 
where I chose to follow Jesus. 2016 is the year I chose to follow him. If you're not yet a believer, how cool would it be to look back on this year and say, this is the year I chose to follow after him and to become his disciple in spite of the cost? I want to ask some other questions of us as we wrap up. The first question is, is our Christian faith only as strong as the benefits we receive from it? Or is our faith conditional? Is our discipleship conditional when it comes to following Christ? Next question, do we desire deep discipleship as opposed to casual commitment? As a church, myself included, do we want converts or disciples? What are we doing to foster discipleship in our own hearts? Gary has challenged all of us to get into his word, to be a disciple by getting into his word. Do you know when you want to hear something really crazy? The word disciple is closely linked to discipline. There's a connection with those words. To be a disciple means that you're disciplined. And we're, we're somehow against that word and that idea in the church. But to be disciplined as a disciple. Fourth question, what are we doing to foster discipleship in the hearts of others? And then lastly, do we seek to be disciples that make disciples? As a church, our mission is to make disciples. If you're someone that is currently serving as a leader, you're helping to make disciples in our children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, singles ministry, small groups, alpha, celebrate recovery. I want you to stand up. If you're involved in these aspects of leadership at our church, go ahead and stand up. Does everyone hear my announcement on that? In any area of these, of these parts of our church, if you're helping to lead these kinds of ministries in any way, I know many are actually back there working and serving as we speak, but we want you to know that a mark of discipleship is someone who makes other disciples. And so what would 2016 look like if everyone seeks after this kind of deep discipleship? What would this year look like if, our, if everyone saw themselves as disciple makers and somehow in the process of disciple making at a church here at TBC? And so I want to um, close with this video by Francis Chan. Let's go ahead and watch this video. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. All right, most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. it, it Simon Says is, uh, you know, you just, Simon Says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus Says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. You, you, you study it, you memorize You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense. A lot of the things we do, when he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? But they memorized it. You know, when I tell my daughter, hey, hey, Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. I can say it in Greek. <laughs> my friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. 
She knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know? It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. Pray. Father, we thank you so much that you gave up so much so that we can join you in that. We thank you that we get to bear some costs as well, in spite of the fact that we know that we're, we're saved freely and justified freely, yet you give us what it takes to endure through the costly journey of discipleship. And we thank you for that. I pray for this coming year for us as a church, that we delve into what this looks like as a church, as a body. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, and you're dismissed.